Welcome to Fast Asleep. You may be here to listen to an exceptional story. And that exceptional story is going to take you to a beautiful night's sleep. So, put all your troubles behind you. It's nice to have you with us. You've made it to part two of our Edith Wharton ghost story. And congratulations, by the way. This story was first published in 1910, and not all of it is easy to follow, but it's worth it. You'll notice that I also drop in a few definitions once in a while, just for clarification. Okay, we've learned in episode one that Mr. Boyne has become very anxious despite this wonderful retirement. We've learned that he and his wife now live with a ghost that they will not know to be a ghost until, and this is where you tuck in and get ready to enjoy, until afterward. It's all right? It is all right? She questioned through the flood of her dissolving doubts. Oh, I give you my word, it never was writer. He laughed at her, holding her close. One of the strangest things she was afterward to recall out of all the next day's incredible strangeness was the sudden and complete recovery of her sense of security. It was in the air when she woke in her low-ceilinged, dusky room. It accompanied her downstairs to the breakfast table, flashed out at her from the fire, and reduplicated itself brightly from the flanks of the urn and the sturdy flutings of the Georgian teapot. It was as if, in some roundabout way, all her diffused apprehensions of the previous day with their moment of sharp concentration about the newspaper article, as if this dim questioning of the future and startled return upon the past had between them liquidated the arrears of some haunting moral obligation. If she had indeed been careless of her husband's affairs, it was. Her new state seemed to prove because her faith in him instinctively justified such carelessness. And his right to her faith had overwhelmingly affirmed itself in the very face of menace and suspicion. She had never seen him more untroubled, more naturally and unconsciously in possession of himself than after the cross-examination to which she had subjected him. It was almost as if he had been aware of her lurking doubts and had wanted the air cleared as much as she did. It was clear, thank heaven, as the bright outer light that surprised her almost with a touch of summer when she issued from the house for her daily round of the gardens. She had left Boyne at his desk, 
indulging herself as she passed the library door by a last peep at his quiet face where he bent pipe in his mouth above his papers. And now she had her own morning's task to perform. The task involved on such charmed winter days almost as much delighted loitering about the different quarters of her domain, her land, as if spring were already at work on shrubs and borders. There was such inexhaustible possibilities still before her, such opportunities to bring out the latent graces of the old place without a single irreverent touch of alteration that the winter months were all too short to plan what spring and autumn executed. And her recovered sense of safety gave, on this particular morning, a peculiar zest to her progress through the sweet, still place. She went first to the kitchen garden, where the espaliered, framed pear trees drew complicated patterns on the walls, and the pigeons were fluttering and preening about the silver-slated roof of their cot. There was something wrong about the piping of the hot house, and she was expecting an authority from Dorchester who was to drive out between trains and make a diagnosis of the boiler. But when she dipped into the damp heat of the greenhouses, among the spiced scents and waxy pinks and reds of old-fashioned exotics. Even the flora of Ling was in the note. She learned that the great man had not arrived, and the day being too rare to waste in an artificial atmosphere, she came out again and paced slowly among the springy turf of the bowling green to the gardens behind the house. At their farther end, rose a grass terrace commanding over the fish pond and yew hedges a view of the long house front with its twisted chimney stacks and the blue shadows of its roof angles all drenched in the pale gold moisture of the air. Seen thus across the level tracery of the yews under the suffused mild light it sent her from its open windows and hospitably smoking chimneys, the look of some warm human presence, of a mind slowly ripened on a sunny wall of experience. She had never before had so deep a sense of her intimacy with it, such a conviction that its secrets were all beneficent, kept, as they said to children, for one's good. So complete a trust in its power to gather up her life and Ned's into the harmonious pattern of the long, long story it sat there weaving in the sun. She heard steps behind her and turned, expecting to see the gardener, accompanied by the engineer from Dorchester, but only one figure was in sight, that of a youngish, slightly built man who, for reasons she could not, on the spot, have specified, 
did not remotely resemble her preconceived notion of an authority on hot house boilers. The newcomer on seeing her lifted his hat and paused with the air of a gentleman, perhaps a traveler, desirous of having it immediately known that his intrusion is involuntary. The local fame of Ling occasionally attracted the more intelligent sightseer, and Mary half expected to see the stranger dissemble a camera or justify his presence by producing it, but he made no gesture of any sort, and after a moment she asked in a tone responding to the courteous deprecation of his attitude, Is there anyone you wish to see? I came to see Mr. Boyne, he replied. His intonation, rather than his accent, was faintly American, and Mary, at the familiar note, looked at him more closely. The brim of his soft felt hat cast a shade on his face, which, thus obscured, wore to her short-sighted gaze a look of seriousness, as a person arriving on business, and civilly but firmly aware of his rights. Past experience had made Mary equally sensible to such claims, but she was jealous of her husband's morning hours and doubtful of his having given anyone the right to intrude on them. Have you an appointment with Mr. Boyne? She asked. He hesitated, as if unprepared for the question. Not exactly an appointment, he replied. Oh, well, then I'm afraid this being his working time, that he can't receive you now. Will you give me a message or come back later? The visitor, again lifting his hat, briefly replied that he would come back later and walked away as if to regain the front of the house. As his figure receded down the walk between the yew hedges, Mary saw him pause and look up an instant at the peaceful house front bathed in faint winter sunshine, and it struck her with a tardy touch of compunction that it would have been more humane to ask if he had come from a distance and to offer, in that case, to inquire if her husband could receive him. But as the thought occurred to her, he passed out of sight behind a pyramidal you. And at the same moment, her attention was distracted by the approach of the gardener, attended by the bearded pepper and salt figure of the boiler maker from Dorchester. Ah, the encounter with this authority led to such far-reaching issues that they resulted in his finding it expedient to ignore his train and beguiled Mary into spending the remainder of the morning in absorbed confabulation, made-up stories, among the greenhouses. She was startled to find, when the colloquy, conversation, ended, that it was nearly luncheon time, and she half expected as she hurried back to the house to see her husband coming out to meet her. But she found no one in the court, an undergardener, raking the gravel, and in the hall when she entered it. It was so silent that she guessed Boyne to be still at work behind the closed door of the library. 
Not wishing to disturb him, she turned into the drawing room and there at her writing table lost herself in renewed calculations of the outlay to which the morning's conference had committed her. The knowledge that she could permit herself such follies had not yet lost its novelty. And somehow, in contrast to the vague apprehensions of the previous days, it now seemed an element of her recovered security, of the sense that, well, as Ned had said, things in general had never been writer. She was still luxuriating in a lavish play of figures when the parlor maid from the threshold roused her with a dubiously worded inquiry as to the expediency of serving luncheon. It was one of their jokes that Trimmel announced luncheon as if she were divulging a state secret. And Mary, intent upon her papers, merely murmured an absent-minded assent. She felt Trimmel wavering expressively on the threshold, as if in rebuke of such offhand acquiescence. Then her retreating steps sounded down the passage, and Mary, pushing away her papers, crossed the hall and went to the library door. It was still closed, and she wavered in her turn, disliking to disturb her husband, yet anxious that he should not exceed his normal measure of work. As she stood there balancing her impulses, the esoteric Trimmel returned with the announcement of luncheon, and Mary, thus impelled, opened the door and went into the library. Oh, well, Boyne was not at his desk, and she peered about expecting to discover him in the bookshelves. Somewhere down the length of the room, but her call brought no response, and gradually it became clear to her that he was not in the library. She turned back to the parlor maid. Mr. Boyne must be upstairs. Please tell him that luncheon is ready. The parlor maid appeared to hesitate between the obvious duty of obeying orders and an equally obvious conviction of the foolishness of the injunction laid upon her. The struggle resulted in her, in her saying doubtfully, if you please, madam, Mr. Boyne's not upstairs. Well, he's not in his room, are you sure? I'm sure, madam. Mary consulted the clock. Well, where is he then? He's gone out, Trimmel announced, with the superior air of one who has respectfully waited for the question that a well-ordered mind would have first propounded. Mary's previous conjecture had been right then, Boyne must have gone to the gardens to meet her, and since she had missed him, it was clear that he had taken the shorter way by the south door instead of going round to the court. She crossed the hall to the glass portal, opening directly on the yew garden, but the parlor maid, after another moment of inner conflict, decided to bring out recklessly, Please, madam, Mr. Boyne didn't go that way. Mary turned back. Well, where did he go? And when? He went out of the front door, up the drive, madam. It was a matter of principle with Trimmel, never to answer more than one question at a time. Up the drive? At this hour? 
Mary went to the door herself and glanced across the court through the long tunnel of bare limes. But its perspective was as empty as when she had scanned it on entering the house. Did Mr. Boyne leave no message? she asked. Trimble seemed to surrender herself to a last struggle with the forces of chaos. No, madam, he just went out with the gentleman. The gentleman? What gentleman? Mary wheeled about as if to front this new factor. The gentleman who called, madam, said Trimble resignedly. When did a gentleman call? Do explain yourself, Trimble. Only the fact that Mary was very hungry and that she wanted to consult her husband about the greenhouses would have caused her to lay so unusual an injunction on her attendant. And even now she was detached enough to note in Trimble's eye the dawning defiance of the respectful subordinate who has been pressed too hard. I, I, I couldn't say the hour, madam, because... Well, I didn't let the gentleman in, she replied, with the air of magnanimously ignoring the irregularity of her mistress's course. You didn't let him in? No, madam. When the bell rang, I was dressing, and Agnes... Well, go ask Agnes, then, Mary interjected. Trimble still wore her look of patient magnan magnanimity. Agnes would not know, madam, for she had unfortunately burnt her hand in trying the wick of the new lamp from town. Trimble, as Mary was aware, had always been opposed to the new lamp. And so Mrs. Dockett sent the kitchen maid instead. Mary looked again at the clock. It's after two. Go and ask the kitchen maid if Mr. Boyne left any word. She went in to lunch, luncheon without waiting, and Trimmel presently brought her there the kitchen maid's statement that the gentleman had called about one o'clock, that Mr. Boyne had gone out with him without leaving any message. The kitchen maid did not even know the caller's name, for he had written it on a slip of paper, which he had folded and handed to her with the injunction to deliver it at once to Mr. Boyne. Hmm. Well, Mary finished her luncheon, still wondering, and when it was over and Trimble had brought the coffee to the drawing room, her wonder had deepened to a first faint tinge of disquietude. It was unlike Boyne to absent himself without explanation at so unwanted an hour, and the difficulty of identifying the visitor whose summons he had apparently obeyed made his disappearance the more unaccountable. Mary Boyne's experience as the wife of a busy engineer subject to sudden calls and compelled to keep irregular hours, had trained her to the philosophic acceptance of surprises, but since Boyne's withdrawal from business, he had adopted a Benedictine regularity of life, as if to make up for the dispersed and agitated years, 
with their stand-up lunches and dinners rattled down to the joltings of the dining car, he cultivated the last refinements of punctuality and monotony, discouraging his wife's fancy for the unexpected and declaring that to a delicate taste there were infinite gradations of pleasure in the fixed recurrences of habit. Still, since no life can completely defend itself from the unforeseen, it was evident that all Boyne's precautions would sooner or later prove unavailable, and Mary concluded that he had cut short a tiresome visit by walking with his caller to the station, or at least accompanying him for part of the way. This conclusion relieved her from farther preoccupation, and she went out herself to take up her conference with the gardener. Thence she walked to the village post office a mile or so away, and when she turned toward home, the early twilight was setting in. She had taken a footpath across the downs, and as Boyne, meanwhile, had probably returned from the station by the high road, there was little likelihood of their meeting on the way. She felt sure, however, of his having reached the house before her, so sure that when she entered it herself, without even pausing to inquire of Trimmel, she made directly for the library. But the library was still empty. And with an unwanted precision of visual memory, she immediately observed that the papers on her husband's desk lay precisely as they had lain when she had gone in to call him to luncheon. Then of a sudden, she was seized by a vague dread of the unknown. She had closed the door behind her on entering, and as she stood alone in the long, silent, shadowy room. Her dread seemed to take shape and sound. To be there, audibly breathing and lurking among the shadows. Her short-sighted eyes strained through them, half discerning an actual presence. Something aloof that watched and knew, and in the recoil from that intangible propinquity, she threw herself suddenly on the bell rope and gave it a desperate pull. <coughs> the long, quavering summons brought Trimble in precipitately with a lamp, and Mary breathed again at this sobering reappearance of the usual. You may bring tea if Mr. Boyne is in, she said, to justify her ring. The kitchen maid was not available, but Trimmel was. Very well, madam, but Mr. Boyne is not in, said Trimmel, putting down the lamp. Not in? You mean he's come back and gone out again? No, madam. He's never been back. The dread stirred again, and Mary knew that now 
It had her fast. Not since he went out with the gentleman. Not since he went out with the gentleman. But who was the gentleman? Mary gasped out with a sharp note of someone trying to be heard through a confusion of meaningless noises. Oh, that I couldn't say, madam. Trimmel, standing there by the lamp, seemed suddenly to grow less round and rosy, as though eclipsed by the same creeping shade of apprehension. But the maid knows. Wasn't it the kitchen maid who let him in? She doesn't know either, madam, for he wrote his name on a folded paper. Mary, through her agitation, was aware that they were both designating the unknown visitor by a vague pronoun instead of the conventional formula which, till then, had kept their illusions within the bounds of custom. And at the same moment her mind caught at the suggestion of the folded paper. Oh, but he must have a name. Where's the paper? She moved to the desk and began to turn over the scattered documents that littered it. The first that caught her eye was an unfinished letter in her husband's hand, with his pen lying right across it, as though dropped there at a sudden summons. My dear Parvis, oh, who was Parvis? I have just received your letter announcing Elwell's death. And while I suppose there is now no farther risk of trouble, it might be safer. She tossed the sheet aside and continued her search. But no folded paper was discoverable among the letters and pages of manuscript which had been swept together in a promiscuous heap, as if by a hurried or a startled gesture. But the kitchen maid saw him. Send her here, she commanded, wondering at her dullness in not thinking sooner of so simple a solution. Trimmel, at the behest, vanished in a flash, as if thankful to be out of the room, and when she reappeared, conducting the agitated underling, Mary had regained her self-possession and had her questions pat. The gentleman was a stranger, yes, that she understood. But what had he said, and above all, what had he looked like? The first question was easily enough answered for the disconcerting reason that he had said so little, had merely asked for Mr. Boyne, and scribbling something on a bit of paper had requested that it should at once be carried in to him. Then you don't know what he wrote. You're not sure it even was his name. The kitchen maid was not sure, but supposed it was, since he had written it, in answer to her inquiry as to whom she should announce. And when you carried the paper in to Mr. Boyne, what did he say? The kitchen maid did not think that Mr. Boyne had said anything, but she could not be sure, for just as she had handed him the paper, and just as he was opening it, why, she had become aware that the visitor had followed her into the library, and she had slipped out, leaving the two gentlemen together. But then if you left them in the library, how do you know that they went out of the house? Oh, well... This question plunged the witness into momentary inarticulateness, from which she was rescued by Trimmel, 
who by means of ingenious circumlocutions, indirect ways of expressing things, elicited the statement that before she could cross the hall to the back passage, she had heard the gentlemen behind her and had seen them go out of the front door together. Well, then if you saw the gentleman twice, you must be able to tell me what he looked like. Hmm. With this final challenge to her powers of expression, it became clear that the limit of the kitchen maid's endurance had been reached. The obligation of going to the front door to show in a visitor was, in itself, so subversive of the fundamental order of things that it had thrown her faculties into hopeless disarray. And, well, she could only stammer out after various panting efforts at evocation. His hat, Mum, was different, like, as you might say. Different? Oh, how different? Mary flashed out at her, her own mind, in the same instant, leaping back to an image left on it that morning, but temporarily lost under layers of subsequent impressions. His hat had a wide brim, you mean, and his face was pale, a youngish face, Mary pressed her, with a white-lipped intensity of interrogation. But if the kitchen maid found any adequate answer to this challenge, it was swept away for her listener, down the rushing current of her own convictions. The stranger, the stranger in the garden. Why had Mary not thought of him before? She needed no one now to tell her that it was he who had called for her husband and gone away with him. But who was he? And why had Boyne obeyed his call? And that's where we'll stop. Please tune in to our next episode for the conclusion of Afterward. Good night.